So I'm going to go ahead and just launch in, even though they're still picking that up, because uh, we're ready to go, and thank you for the clock. All right, so warning right now, long intro. Oftentimes that means long sermon. It doesn't mean long sermon today. It honestly is a short sermon. Uh, I don't know, for those of you who watch the clock, and thankfully there's not too many that do because the ones that did aren't here anymore, but anyway... <laughs> It's, it's, it's on me. Hey, I'm not saying anything about them, okay? But the bottom line is, is we have, I have been working on keeping them at a different length, uh, just because I've always believed in that, but, you know, just whatever. So, but, but I need to do something here. I need to cast vision here at the beginning of the year, because God is doing an extraordinary thing for an extraordinary reason, and I want us to grasp it, so I'm going to do this long it's not even an intro, it's kind of its own thing, uh, but it certainly feeds into where we're going today. So let me just say, and by a show of hands, how many people saw Eric and Tamerly last week in some fashion, online, whatever? See, now that's extraordinary. That's almost the whole house. Now, I'm going to go ahead and, and do a few things with that just to make sure we're all on the same page. But we, here's what we thought we were going to have on New Year's Day. We thought we'd have about 50 people total and that it was just, it wasn't a throwaway because it's a time to worship the Lord and that's never a time of throwaway. But it was, it was just meant to be something very, very low key. We set up right in the middle of the room. We circled around it. We did low key worship. We just did, we just wanted everything. The whole thing was less than an hour. What we were really looking for was just something that was very encouraging, that was a good way to sort of start the new year. But being New Year's Day, we didn't want to overdo it, right? So that's what I had planned. And as I was praying about who should do that, whether it's me or somebody else, uh, the, the couple that just kept coming to my heart was Eric and Tamara Lee. And I went to staff, and, and you know they, there was other names that were suggested, and there was a lot of things to work through, but it just became more and more clear, as it always does, frankly, that it was them. They were the ones that were supposed to do this. So I asked them when they were sitting in church one morning, and they, I, I walked by and I said, I want you to preach in a couple of weeks and, you know, keep it simple, and don't worry about it, it'll be short, and if, if you spend too much time preparing it, you've overdone it. And so they said, you know, after a little prayer, they said yes, which is exactly the right pattern. And then on Friday before the Sunday, uh, Eric posted something, and the post went something like this. Um, you know, he said it would be short. He said we didn't have to worry about it. He said it wouldn't be a big deal. He said not to worry about it. Oh, Lord, you know, it was like, oh, my God, you know. And then he says, why does God always do this with me? Now, when he said that, it was a funny post, and I liked it and everything else, but I knew that there was a pretty good chance that what was happening was something that I had a concern about, and the concern was the election, okay, because uh, just very carefully and so that everybody understands, this election was was. At this point in time, I understand something. 60 to now, we're probably up to 70, maybe even higher than that. So you're just done with it, all right? He got elected. It's going to happen. Here's what's going to go on, and we're going to see what happens, and you're praying for him and wishing the best and so on. But, but at that time, it wasn't quite that high a percentage. And either way, for those who cared a lot about him getting elected or a lot about him not getting elected, there, and that was about equal in this church. We were, we were pretty evenly mixed on people that felt very passionately about that. I just knew that I was still getting a lot of emails, phone calls, having a lot of conversations with people that were still processing this in a way that was obvious that there were very raw nerves that were still out there. 
And so as a hopefully wise person, a person that's been around long enough to do things with discernment and discretion, I just didn't really want to pull the trigger quite yet because even though we'd be talking about not the election per se, but we'd be talking about what happened in ways that God was going to use, and I knew he was going to use it. I knew that there were things that happened that he was going to circle back on and that was going to be important for us to talk about. Not about Trump and policy and that kind of stuff, but about staying together. What happens when there's great division? And I think, as I've said before, I think that um, uh, a lot of more liberal progressive people in this body think that they're kind of the only ones. You're clearly not. All you have to do is look at my email and to see the number of people. It was, it was a number of people that were wrestling with this and so on. And that's awesome in my book. I think that there's things to be found in God virtually everywhere and that we need to be finding wherever he is and incorporating that. But the, the idea was, is this was such a fracturing thing that how do we stay together? That was the heart of it. What is God doing in this and so on? And, and I was just kind of, you know, I did a little bit of a sermon on it a few weeks ago and so on. But you catch where I was. And so the point was, is on New Year's Day, what I really didn't want to do was go poke that wound. I didn't want to, you know, peel the scab off before it was ready. You catch my drift? And so I called him, and I, I, knew, I knew Eric wasn't going to be doing that, because I know him. But I did want to say, you know, what are you planning on doing, and so on, and where are we on this? So I called him, we had a really nice chat, and sure enough, as I expected, the vast majority of what he was saying had to do with this exact point that I'm just talking about. How do you stay together when there's division? And the Lord was giving him a word like that. Now, I want to say, that word was much deeper and sort of weighty than what I had in mind for New Year's Day. I had something that was much more sort of encouraging and, and not light, but, you know, it had a different spirit and feel to it. You catch the drift? So that's what I had planned for that day. But, you know, when we pray and we ask people to do something before the Lord, they're responsible for doing what the Lord has led them to do. And I, I wouldn't ask unless I felt like they would do that. And so they did that. And, and it was awesome. And now I want to show you something, okay? And I want to just show you, there's, there's going to be three layers to this little intro that I'm doing here. And here's the first layer. The first layer is, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that the Lord has been doing an extraordinary thing. As we have opened the pulpit up to people from the congregation preaching, the Lord will have that person have the next step of what's supposed to be said. And what this has been doing is it's been making our coverage of the thing that the Lord wants to do with us much broader than it would ever be from one person. Plus, because it's not the pro telling you what to do, which everybody unconsciously discounts, it's people from the congregation talking about their own lives and what God's doing and what he's saying, and they're seeing this real process working in people's lives. It's also made it easier for people to grasp the journey of it. To be frank, there's a third thing too, and that is it sort of slowed down how fast we go through something. Because I would only cover so much of it and then I'd move on. But we're not done with it yet. God's not done with it yet. We haven't incorporated it yet. So it has made it much more broader so that it doesn't feel like the same sermon every week. But at the same time, it gives us enough time to actually embrace this thing that God's doing in that moment. Catch it? So that's been going on for a long time now where whether I preach or somebody else preaches, there's been this line upon line, precept upon precept. God has been building and taking us on this incredible journey for years now. Now, I want to show you something. I did not know what the next verse, when I asked Eric 
and Tamara to do it. I didn't know what the next verse was. I didn't know what they were going to talk about. I had something else entirely in mind. But what they talked about was, how do you stay together? Now, I want to show you, just, just so that you can see the, the thing that God's doing here in this level. I want to show you the next verses in Luke. The ones that I was planning on being in, but I didn't know what they were. I hadn't looked at them. I hadn't thought I had like that. I don't do that. I'm letting the Lord take us week by week. But the bottom line is, is what happened was, this is the verses that I looked at. Now, just a little preparation for you. Remember something. We are at the time where we're at the very end of uh, Jesus' time with the disciples before his death. Chronologically, we have a matter of just a weeks, just a few weeks. We have several chapters, so it'll take us more than a few weeks. But the point is, is that we're, we're right at the very end of his ministry, and he's saying the most important things that he's ever going to say to the disciples. Having raised them to a certain point, he's now telling them things that they don't know he's about to leave, but he does. And so he's telling them how to get on after he's gone. See it? Now, so think about what Eric's sermon was. I'm on my walk. I say, what's the next passage in Luke? And here's what it is. He said to his disciples, offenses will surely come. <laughs> you think this is on point? But woe to the one through whom they come, th the one they come through. It'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. We've heard that in another context having to do with kids, but he's not, it's not being used here that way. It's being used with us together. Because he says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day <laughs> and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, does anybody else think that that's kind of on point to what Eric and Tamara preached last week? That, I, 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 literally, I was just, you know, it was like I could fall down. I didn't actually fall down, but I was just like, oh my gosh, Lord, you know, this is where you have us. So that's the first level. God is taking us week to week, and this is a particularly striking example of it. Now, I want to take you to the next level. And the next level starts with this. Indeed, the sovereign Lord never does anything until he reveals his plans to his servants, the prophets. The Lord never does anything unless he tells us first. Now, why does he do that? Well, let me give you an example of it, and let me just say, the Lord has been doing that extraordinarily over the last several years at this church. It's been happening at the beginning of the year, which is always a moment, you know, where everybody, all pastors pray, what's the word for the year, and so on. But it's been happening in the fall, which is the real church calendar year. It's also been happening in the beginning of summer. It's also been happening throughout, see it? Now, so the point is, is God has been telling us what's going to happen. And I've been coming before you and saying, I think that this is what the Lord is saying in this next season. And he's going to work on it over this next season. I don't know if it's true or not. Let's see what happens. And then sure enough, he does it. Right? So that's what he's been doing. Now let me show you why that's important. In 2008, one of these things happened. It wasn't with a front of year or anything. But in 2008... The Lord, as most of you know, this was early 2008, springtime, winter into spring. The Lord came to me and said, discipleship is in the toilet, and I'm going to blow up my church because of it. 
Now, you guys, if you've been here very long, you've heard me say that way too many times. But that's what he told me in 2008. I had no idea what that meant. Everything looked very good in all churches. We had a lot of staff people. We had a lot of good ministry going on. We had a lot of things going really well. And I was just like, I don't understand any of this, but what does it mean? So we started praying and processing. And by the time we got three or four months into it, so it was still pre the crash, by the time we got three or four months into it, we had already figured some things out. And that was what we came to call the pros of the problem. Meaning that what has happened in our affluence the amount of money coming into churches was so much that we were able to hire all these pastors to do these very particular jobs. A lot of churches had a music minister and a worship leader, as, as if those were two different things, okay? And they are two different things when you get big enough, right? But the point is, is think about the level of, right? So the point is, is that what we said was, is we need to do something about this. What's happened is, the pros are the ones that are doing all the work and all the responsibilities leaning on them. And what's happening is the people that are supposed to be doing that work are not carrying any responsibility, and so God can't disciple them. So we literally started saying the pros are the problem, and we started shifting away from our pros. Literally, people who were on staff being paid started helping us make a transition to steering teams and people in the body doing the work of the ministry, and then would take another job somewhere else as and we had this big transition that took us about a year and a half, two years to do. Now, in late 2008, what happened was, is that the economy crashed. And churches initially were very afraid what was going to happen, but then 2009 happened. And the amazing thing about 2008 and 2009 was church incomes did not drop. Ours included. Nobody's dropped. They were all doing well, and we thought, well, we made it through somehow. But in 2010, when people started losing their houses for real, and jobs and all the stuff that started happening kicked in for big time. Church incomes dropped on an average. I can't remember if I got this right now, but it's, I think it was as high as 40%. On average, church incomes dropped 40%. Now think about that. Much of the church cost is fixed. So the only variable costs really are the pastors. So what this meant was a whole lot of pastors got fired. But now watch what happens when you believe this, that God will tell you before he does anything. And if you work on it, if you don't just hear it and then do nothing, but if you work on what it means, he will have you positioned so that when he does what he's going to do, it not only is not the consternation, fear, worry, oh my gosh, what's going on? Doesn't God love us? What are we doing wrong? Blah, 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 that happened in so many churches. You're actually experiencing Oh my gosh, look what God's done to prepare us for this. And where he's taking us is better than where, we were, than where we were when we had the money. Do you see it? If you'll pay attention, if you'll listen for him, if you'll seek him and what he's saying and hear what he's saying and then respond, he will have you in places where when others are experiencing the sky falling, you're experiencing God doing what he does all the time when he works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Do you see it? This is what happens. This is what he's doing. This is who he is. Now here's what's cool that happened last week. 
for the years that God has been telling us what's coming in the next season, whether it be the year or just a few months or whatever it is, for a long time since God's been doing that, for the whole time that he's been doing that, up until last week, it was me that brought the word. I'd go up to Viewcrest and I'd walk around and pray and pray in the spirit and ask God what he wanted to do and then he'd say something to me and then I'd bring it back and I'd think about it, pray about it, I'd bring it back to everybody, I'd give it up for you guys to discern and we would walk through it and that's the pattern that's been happening. Well, guess what happened last week? For the first time ever in our lives, in this church's life, that major directive word came through Eric and Tamerly. Not me. That's a big thing. This needs to be noted, and we need to pay attention to that the Lord is doing something that we could easily skip over or skip past and just take it for whatever. But the fact is, is God's trying to do something. And he's given us a precursor of what he's trying to do. In fact, let me tell you how strong this was. When we did our little Friday talk and then we had a sermon run through on Saturday, I still didn't understand that it was a word from the Lord for the next season. But at the end of our preach call, and it wasn't until the end of it, all of a sudden the Lord just dropped in my heart and said, do you see it? This is the word for the next season. I'm going to come to a body of believers that has done doing an extraordinary job of being family. And I'm going to do this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'm going to set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The Lord is doing something in our midst. And it's not a small thing. He's saying, well done, good and faithful. Well done, what you've done so far. But now, having done what you did, I'm going to take you to a new place. But here's the key. Whenever you go to a new place, is it easy, easy, easy peasy, happily ever after? Is that how you get from one place to another place in the Lord? In life? Right? It's just easy, right? You want to become something new? You just become something new. Easy as pie, right? Is that how it happens? Here's what Eric said in his sermon last week. This is going to have a little sound. It'll be a little hard to hear. It's a low-quality res. But this is about how diamonds are formed. And Eric talked about diamonds versus sand. So I want to just show you. Here's how a diamond is formed. Diamonds form deep within the earth in an area called the mantle. The layer between the Earth's crust and its superheated core. Down here, intense pressure changes the molecular structure of carbon by crushing its atoms together and forcing them into a new lattice-like structure. Now, here's what's just been said. Let me, let me kind of show it to you this way, actually. Well, now... Uh, let me jump back and forth here. Graphite, did you know that diamonds are made up of the very same thing that graphite is? It's just carbon atoms. And it's carbon atoms formed in a way that carbon atoms will form, which forms what they call a weak bond. The reason why when you write with a pencil, it leaves something on the paper, it flakes off, is because it's a weak bond of carbon. It's, it's coal, right? Same basic idea. 
And what you do is when you write, it's weakly bonded, so it comes off and leaves its imprint or leaves its stuff on the paper, and there you've got writing, right? So that's a weak bond. But here's what happens when you're actually going after, when you get to a diamond place. You take that very same coal that's weakly bonded. You get the metaphor? Weakly bonded. It's bonded, but weakly, and it can flake off. And what happens is you put it under intense heat and intense pressure, so much so that those atoms collapse down into the very tightest space and relationship with each other they can, and it forms a new kind of bond between the carbon atoms called a strong bond. And it becomes, as you see in that little diagram right there, the strongest material known to man. When those carbon, and here's what happens. Those carbon atoms, you can, you, 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 you can hook a, a graphite, you can put an electroid here, an electroid there, and it'll go through because the electrons are free and they'll transfer the electricity, right? Diamonds don't transfer electricity. It's not even that their molecules, their atoms, and, and their neutrons have become as close as they possibly can. Even the electrons, every single part of that carbon has lined up in the tightest possible arrangement with each other, and when it does, it locks in. I hope you're getting the metaphor. And when it locks in, think about it, when you get that kind of heat and pressure and you cause everything to line up, it's not just line, you lining up with God, it's God lining us up with one another. And when that happened, you go from something that is opaque and flaky to something that is, you can see through it. It becomes an entirely different thing, doesn't it? Not only that, but you understand why a diamond looks brilliant, right? It's because there's light that comes in and bounces around off the various surfaces and then comes back out in all kinds of different ways. And so the point is, is God's light is able to come into a body that has formed strong bonds in a way that reflects brilliantly, multifacetedly, remarkably. Do you see this? You get the image, the metaphor? Now this is, I'm just stealing his sermon. I'm not adding anything to what he said. Let's be clear. I'm not adding anything to what God said last week. Because God gave us a word at the beginning of the year, and what he said was, is, I want to take you from one thing to another, because right now, he can come and he can take us in his hand, and he can press us together hard as he can, right? And hard like this, and if we don't line up, if we don't do what it takes to line up, and I don't mean become puppets of each other. I mean to be real and honest and transparent. I mean to become people that have committed to one another in a way that has brought it to an entirely new place. When we don't do that, then we're just sand and we're really good for nothing. It just leaks through and becomes nothing. Do you see it? But what happens when we do it the other way? So this is the end of that long introduction, but here's what I want to say to you. I want to tell you at the beginning of 2017 that God has, I think, two layers of the word that he's given us 
through Eric and Tamara. The first layer is there's going to be some testing. There's going to be some tribulation. There's going to be some things that are going to need to be worked out between people and not just about the election. That's just a, that's just a thing, right? There's going to be some things that are going to need to happen. And by the way, think about what we're doing with community groups, this thing that I've been talking about. God is trying to take us to an entirely different level in our relationships with one another. That's what he's doing. I believe, by the way, and you'll, you'll be hearing about this soon, we've been looking for the anointed leader that's going to help us actually accomplish that, and God seems to be bringing in somebody who is going to be an amazing fit for all of this, and God is guiding and providing. And the thing that I want you to get a hold of, the thing that I want this church to hear, and the word that I'm trying to accent that was given through Eric and Tamara is that God is not just going to be doing a relational thing with us, but he's got something brilliant that he's trying to do. He's trying to take us way beyond just being nicer to each other or kinder or more tolerant. He's trying to take us to a new place of becoming aligned with him in a way that creates a strong bond that makes us beautiful and brilliant in him. See it? You good for it? Who's our prayer? Rick Curtin. What a perfect person to pray for this. Rick has just got so much depth and wisdom. And, and uh, if you don't know the Curtins yet, they've been here quite a while, but you do yourself a favor, please get to know them. They are absolutely wonderful. But the bottom line is, is Rick, not just for the sermon, but for the year. Would you pray for us? Thank you for your word. In Psalm 22, that says, those who seek the Lord will praise him. And um, as we seek you, Lord, may we be drawn deeper and deeper into praise of you. And I thank you for what you are teaching us all now, uh, right now, and through this year in which you have been teaching us. And as we seek you in that, Father, may you bring us to praise you, Father, to raise our hands. Amen to shout your name like we were singing this morning to praise you. And uh, throughout the whole year, Lord, just, just may our hearts be open to seek you, to hear what you are saying to us, and to praise you. And I pray also for Opal House, Lord, in Guatemala. Thank you, And Jesus. the uh, ministry that they are daily involved in, in bringing your word and uh, the truth uh, to the native people in near Lake Atitlan. And I just pray, Father, they also will seek you and praise you, Father, every day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' name. Thank you, Rick. That was great. Okay, so what Jesus says to this group of men, and they were still young enough to have testosterone in them, if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Could you, can we all please just take off our Christian glasses and read that as if somebody was telling you to do that right now? Because that's just unbelievable what he's just said. That isn't even nice. It's not kind. It's not right. It's just, it's just a horror. Seriously? You sin against me? I'm not, okay. You sin against me <laughs> seven times in a day? 
The first time you, you, you ask for forgiveness, I'm going to forgive you. The second time, I'm probably going to forgive you. The third time, I'm going to think about forgiving you. The fourth time, I'm saying, what the hell's wrong with you? Right? And why do I have to keep forgiving you? Because this is ridiculous. Get your act together. Right? I mean, we're not doing this. We do not say if he comes back seven times and repents. Now, look, it does say if they don't repent, you don't have to forgive them. So I hope that if you really don't want to forgive them, they never ask for your forgiveness. Okay, yes. Right? But if they do come back, which is what you really want, and say, I'm sorry, you must forgive them. And these guys are saying, you've got to be kidding me. In fact, they say it so strongly that here's how they say it. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> right? Right? This is ridiculous. You, you're asking me something, but, but let me take it another layer here. Okay? Must. To the Jewish here, you need to understand that this is wrong, bad theology. You don't understand God when you say this. But do remember, it's God telling them this. So the Jews obviously had something wrong. But to the Jewish here, particularly of the time, there's something very wrong in saying this. And here's what it boils down to. In Deuteronomy, there are, there are sacrifices that are being made for things that you need to be forgiven for, right? And what it says over and over is, if a person sins unintentionally in this way, then do this sacrifice. If they sin unintentionally in this way, then do this. If they serve unintentionally, you know what it never says? If they, serve in, if they sin intentionally, then there's this sacrifice. There is no sacrifice for an intentional sin. And they took that idea and they married it to another one, which is Numbers, where it says, but the person, native or foreigner, who sins defiantly, deliberately, blaspheming God, must be cut off from his people. He has despised God's word. He has violated God's command. That person must be kicked out of the community, ostracized, left alone in his wrongdoing. Okay? And by the way, anytime God ever says that, he's hoping that ostracized they will repent. Right? But the bottom line, here, here's what they did. What the Jews did is they married those two concepts, and what they said was, an intentional sin there's only so much forgiveness for. We get that every once in a while we may do something, and God's probably big enough and graceful enough and loving enough to do that. But let's get real about it. Boy, if you just sin over and over and over again, if you sin over and over and over again, surely... There's got to be an end of the sacrifice for that because you're just being a putz. You see it? Now, do look at it. It doesn't say, it does say that that person's sinning intentionally, but what are they not doing in that passage? Repenting. So if they're sinning and blaspheming God, and they're, 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 or, or if they're sinning against you and they're telling you you're a horrible human being and I never want to be with you again, then they walk away and they never repent of it, well, then they're gone. Right? But here's the problem. All of us in this place have a problem. For some of us, it's obvious because it's some sort of what we might even put under the large umbrella of addictive behavior. Drugs, alcohol, porn, eating, anger, what? How many things could we name? These things that we do 
and we just do them over and over and over and over, and we never seem to get past them. And the world deals with that in, like I say, this umbrella of addictive behavior. How do you beat addictive behavior? And one of the things that the world finds on it is, is there's lots of things you can do in the flesh to beat it. Right? And so those are important things to do. This is the Proverbs part of life. Always remember that the Psalms part of life takes you to a whole other level, which frees you from it entirely. But if you don't have that Psalms part, you know, getting your behaviors right so that you're not doing things that hurt other people or hurt you or whatever, you know, that's good. You should be doing that. But my point is, is that people that are doing these kinds of sins know that what they're doing is sin and it's not God's will. But here's the way that other people in this body right now, you don't really have anything that you're doing that you're going, I just, you know, it's not any big sin like that. But I want you to think about something. Everybody in here genuinely still has a stronghold in your life. It may not be the one that is so obvious like the ones I just talked about. It may be fear. It may be lack of trust. It may be control. And how many things could I name on this side of the equation? And the point is, is whether you're caught in something that's big and obvious or whether you're caught in something that, that we really don't think of so much as sin, it's still a bondage. And it's keeping us from the freedom and the fullness that God intends us to walk in and has for us to walk in, right? It's still a real problem. And here's what the point is. You have to understand the depth of your problem for a reason. You can't, here's what happens. When you're caught in something that you're not having any victory over, the, the, the hundredth time, the thousandth time, the ten thousandth, when you've sinned the same way a hundred thousand times, which many in this room have done, if not all, when you've sinned the same way a hundred thousand times, here's what happens to us. We just come to a kind of truce with it. We sort of segment it off and put it over there in a different part of our life where we're not going to pay it, never no mind. Or, you know, and we're going to do it, and we feel, but we hardly even, it's not like we come back to the Lord every single time and we're going, oh my God, I can't believe I did that again. And, and we're down on our face and on our knees in tears like we did the thousandth time or the ten thousandth time. At the hundred thousandth time, we're at the place to where I just can't live in that state all the time where I'm just such a stupid, ignorant wreck and I just can't live there. And so we do this thing where we know that God's not okay with it. Now think about this. When you're somebody who's aware of this kind of thing happening in your life, whether it's big sin or little sin, when you're somebody that's aware of this, here's a little bit how you get to thinking about what it's going to be like when you meet Jesus in heaven. Here's what it feels like. I don't want to be in the front row of people that is hugging him. Because I'm afraid he's going to look at me and he's going to see all of this stuff and I'm going to see in his eyes the disappointment of what a disappointment I am. So I'm happy that he has given me grace such as to bring me into heaven. But I would prefer to be on the outer edges of those. One day I will meet him, but it'll be after all of this is long gone. And then maybe it can be good. You see it? Now the problem is, that's a lie from the pit of hell.
If you're somebody who's in a big kind of a sin, you know exactly what I'm saying. If you're somebody who's in a little, more subtle kind of a sin, I need you to do something here. I need you to understand that God is, he doesn't see the one as different than the other. This is keeping you in bondage from the freedom and the fullness that he intends for you to be in. By the way, it's not him, it's you. It's stealing from you. And he wants to set you free from that. He wants you to be past that. He wants you to be free from that. He wants you to be moving in an entirely different place in him and everything else. But here's one of the ways where we get to where we can actually move in freedom. We have to start understanding what grace is. We have to understand that it was God, Jesus, who said, if he sins against you seven times a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You know why he said that? Because that's what we're doing to him every single day. Seven times 70 every single day. Are we coming to him with yet another thing and another thing and another thing, whether it's the little stuff or the big stuff? All the time we're coming to him and we're doing things and then we're, then we, oh God, he did that, I'm so sorry. Never get into that place to where you don't understand what a big deal it really is to you and that you really do need to come to him for help. You always need to be pursuing him for help. But what you don't do is let it get into a place to where it has somehow separated you from his love. Because here he is as God saying, I'm the God who forgives you seven times every day. See that? I'm God. I'm doing that. I want you to do that. And when we do that, now remember what we're talking about here. When we do that, it actually makes us the kind of people that can forgive other people. You see, during those seven days, look, this is that, this is that thing of yeast and sin that is in your life. You must be going after this. This is for the Passover, and what it's saying is yeast is sin. And before the Passover, what you do, and it's, it's a big tradition in Jewish households, and it's fun. The kids go throughout the house, and they look under every single couch, and every single, down into the very cracks of things, into the very corners, and they pull out furniture and look behind the furniture. They're looking for any yeast anywhere in the household. Do you see it? And God is setting up this pattern. If there's any sin... It's killing, it's killing you. So understand it, own it, and receive the Passover. Receive the forgiveness. Get it out of your life. Receive the forgiveness over and over, by the way. So you see what he's saying? Those are, there's no trace of yeast in your homes. Anyone who eats anything made with yeast during the week will be cut off from the community, but then look where it goes. I tell you, he says to the prostitute, who poured out the perfume and they were complaining and blah, blah, blah. But the bottom line is, I, and, oh, she, actually she wept. and her, Okay, but I'm mixing up two stories. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who's forgiven little shows only a little love. If you're in that kind of sin that you just don't think is such a big deal, then God's forgiveness of the things that you do is little. And what do you extend to people who are failing all the time? Little, because you don't think you need much. This is why it's important for you to understand how big it really is, because once you start getting it as much as the thing that God really cares about for your sake, and then you start realizing it, then no matter how big or how small in a relative earthly sense it is, God's able to get you to a place to where he's saying to you, I forgive you. 
I love you. It doesn't separate. And then all of a sudden we become people who, as Paul says, we must not slander anyone. We must avoid quarreling. Indeed, we Christians should be gentle and show true humility. Why? Because once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. It, it, it is an irony that the people who have their act together the most have the least usual, usually grace for other people. When God is grace and love, it's right. You find somebody who really has made a mess of their lives, and what do they usually extend to other people? Not always, right? But you get the you get the general sense of things. Look, our lives are full of envy, and we hated each other. But when our God, our Savior, revealed His kindness and love, He saved us. Not because of our righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. And so, whether that person doesn't know the Lord, and so you have that great thing you can remember, which is they don't know what to do right because the Holy Spirit isn't in them and changed them so as to be able to do right yet. But even when they're a Christian and they're wronging you seven times, it doesn't mean that just because he changes, we've all entered into it fully and we're living in it fully, does it? There's still that old cottonwood tree that's hanging on outside of there with that nasty stuff flaking off and floating through the air, right? And piling up in places. So this is what we're going after. When you become the kind of person who owns the fullness of all of it. Don't grade on the curve. Let the Holy Spirit take you to the next place. When we become the kind of people who are always doing that, we become the kind of people who can extend grace to somebody seven times a day. Because it's what we've been in. It's what we're experiencing. We love because he first loved us. And then we find out the way that he loves us. The Jewish people, because of their theology, had a perverted understanding of who God was. What we're learning is who God is. But we only learn it when we keep going after it. We don't learn it when we think, I'm far enough along, and we're like the guy that says, well, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of stuff and I can lay it up and I can just relax now and enjoy. See it? This process that God wants to do with us as he's going to teach us how to not just forgive one another but how to love one another out of a whole other layer, it's like peeling an onion. The thing about peeling an onion is it makes you cry. The thing about becoming one with somebody else is they make you cry. A lot. And the closer you get to them, and then they do something that really hurts you, and it makes you really hurt, right? It makes your tears, it makes your eyes sting with pain because of what they've done, right? But what God's trying to do is get us down to the juicy heart of it, the tender, vulnerable, transparent heart of it where we become brilliant. Five months ago, Eric did two sermons 
Again, I felt like God asked him to do two sermons in a row. And the first one he came and he did an amazing thing. Again, I had no idea. But he talked to everybody about who are we. And then he did a word picture from what people said. And that word picture, when I saw it, made me cry. Because I went, if I, was, if, if I wanted to do a church and I wanted to start one today, what would I want the end result to be? And it would be that word picture. Family, supportive, loving, growing, real, changing, unfolding, investing, messy. See it? Now what Eric said, now watch this. Well done, good and faithful servants, because here's who Eric identified us to be. We embrace new people, the hurting, and draw them into our community. We spend time with each other, and we build relationships during the week. Community groups are going to take us to a whole other level on what this means. Just, just what I think the Lord's been prepping us to do. We encourage each other to grow in God and become more like Jesus. We help those in need and help meet real practical needs. Praise God. I love this one. We ask for and accept help when we need it. Right? You're real easy to give usually, but harder to receive. We take risks on people. Have them come preach. And we gently coach them through mistakes. We assume others have good intentions. We forgive wrongs done to us. We don't easily quit or leave when things get hard. That wasn't, he didn't make those up as in goals. This is what people said they've experienced at this church. And I think God said this back to that. Well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful over a little, and I'm adding this, I want to set you over much more than you can even imagine so that you can much more fully enter into the joy of me. See it? I want to take you somewhere. So he did something. The election was just part of it, but he did something. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me aside still waters. He restores my soul. When, when Eric did his sermon, we had a nice little moment of, this is really cool. But God doesn't let us just sit there. What he does is, is he comes and he takes a hammer to it. And you think, well, that's kind of cruel. If we're doing good, let us be. But what if where we are has all kinds of things in it that we don't even, weren't even aware of? And what if where he wants to take us so transcends where we are that we would give almost anything to get there if we knew it? God has taken a hammer to this church and to many churches, to the church as a whole and to the, to the world. And he's continuing to do so. But remember why he does that. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's got something he wants to do. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, is death easy? Death is something you don't want. You turn from it. You don't walk into it. And you don't go through it. Okay? You run from it. You avoid it at all costs. In which case you become sand. And you never get aligned. But if you go through it, letting his rod and his staff comfort you, not something we normally think of as comforting. But if we let him get us through this, then he's prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. The things that formerly held over us, the things that formerly we feared, the things that formerly were a problem for us, are now 
around us in a way that we can sit and eat and have no problem with it. It's over. It's done. He's prepared a table in the, in the midst of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil. Our cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives, and we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Which is to say, he's trying to make us brilliant. Strong bond. Lined up. Not as sheep, but as people that are individuals that are coming together, that are giving themselves sacrificially to one another in a way that a new fullness can be expressed, a new reality can be expressed. That which is graphite and weak can become something strong. So Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, this congregation comes before you right now in thanksgiving and in praise in an understanding of what it is that you're doing so that we do not fear it, in an understanding that what you have said here today is that there are things to come which we are not going to like, which are not going to be pleasant, which are more shadow of the valley of the shadow of death than green pastures. But what we say to you is, is we embrace this. We trust you who does and causes all things to work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we come before you in thanksgivings and praise. We come before you in trust. We come before you knowing that if you're doing something, you're doing it for our good. We come before you knowing that you've told us beforehand so that we can embrace it all the more fully. Jesus' name, we come before you saying, God, your will be done. Reach down in front of you, would you? Grab these cups. In this lower cup is the body that was broken for us. Jesus, our magnificent Lord and God, our loving Savior, came to a people that had broken their lives into a total mess. And so knowing that, we take our finger and we put it in there and we break this bread. Acknowledging the mess that we made of it, even if we don't see it completely. But we embrace it. And then we come to you who has healed us, made us whole. And we lift this cup and we say, Jesus, Lord and God of all, Bring us healing and wholeness. Make us one, strong bonded, internally and with one another. Heal us, Lord. In Jesus' name, take together. And now, Jesus, in this name, in the heart and in the spirit, with which you, Heavenly Father, have commanded which you, Holy Trinity, have accomplished. There is a life already waiting for us that we have not entered into because we have been ignorant of it. But we say to you, God, forgive our ignorance. Forgive even our continued failure and bring us into the life that you have. 
It's the one that we want. It's the one that we're giving you permission to get us to, even if it means a valley of the shadow of death. So in Jesus' name, we raise this cup in order to receive and enter into this new life.